day, everyone. This is March Twisdale, producer and host of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose. And I'd like to welcome you to my interview with Dawn Stewart. Hello, Dawn. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, March. Delighted to be here. Yeah, it's going to be fun. Prose, Poetry, and Purpose is recorded in the studios of Voice of Vashon on 101.9 FM KVSH. You can learn more about the show also at my website, marchtwisdale.com, where you can catch up on anything you've missed in the past. Just go to the podcast section. All right, everyone. Thanks for joining us. And now we're going to dive into the show, starting with Dawn. Can you give my listeners a sense of who you are and what you do? Well, let's see. I'm, I was trained as a lawyer, practiced law for a while, uh, then uh, actually went commercial fishing for several years, uh, came back and really didn't care for the law, so ended up going into nonprofit work, worked for the commercial fishing industry, uh, then for the state's conservation districts, little local governments that work with landowners to help them uh, conserve on their land, and then finally for American Farmland Trust, where we worked to uh, preserve agricultural land. A good part of that nonprofit work uh, involved uh, lobbying uh, for state policy at the state legislature. Here in Washington? Here in Washington, yes. So you've been based in this state like most of your life? All my life. Born at Swedish Hospital. Okay, okay, right on. Okay, doke. so we're going to be covering a whole bunch of different stuff here today. And as you can tell, we're going to be all over the place. And yet, everything is connected. So there's two books we're going to talk about, Barnyards and Birkenstocks, Why Farmers and Environmentalists Need Each Other. And then also you have a mystery book called Final Adjournment, which is based in Olympia, correct? Yes, yes. Okay. And do you have any other books? Uh, no. Well, yes, I actually have a book about uh, a small claims court and how to win your case in small claims court. Um, if a person wants to know more about you or get in touch with you, what would be their best avenue? Probably my website, uh, net. DawnStewart.net, and that is Stuart like Stuart Little. Like Stuart Little, or as my grandfather used to say, like Mary Stewart, Queen of Scots. There we go. So for folks who don't know, that's S-T-U-A-R-T. Thank you, Okie doke, dot net. Dot net. Dot net. Good to know. All righty. So um, one thing I'm going to touch on really quick before we dive in is just a little reminder here that Voice of Ashon wants us to give to folks, and that is that the views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the board, staff, underwriters, or donors of Voice of Ashon. As an organization, VOV does not take political positions. We do support our show hosts and their guests in expressing their views, as long as they're not obscene or hate-mongering. So thanks for listening, folks. And now we're going to jump into some interesting stuff. I, I want to start with one of the books. The, both of these books are comfortable to hold. They're accessible. They're not too huge, especially the Barnyards and Birkenstocks. This book, did you self-publish or is it published by a publishing house? Washington State University Press. Excellent. Okay, great. Well, I, they did a good job. Thank you. Yeah, I think yeah, it's yeah. nice. I'm <laughs> proud of it. You know, I, I've, seen, I've seen some books that are not so great. This one's really nice. So um, what's really cool about this, folks, is that sometimes when you pick up a book, um, a nonfiction book, every once in a while it'll be just a little bit too bulky as far as too many words everywhere. This book is really nicely balanced. As I flip through it, and you might hear the little pages flipping in the background, as you flip through it, there are like grayed out boxes that are highlighting specific concepts. There are images that are really quite interesting. There's um, bold 
highlighted um, headings here and there. One of the things that impressed me the most and one of the first things I do is flip through a book and sometimes I just groan if it looks like it's nothing but words, words, words. This book, oh, bullet points. Oh, I love your use of bullet points too. And some pictures. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) So this book is really accessible feeling to me. All right, tell us what inspired you to write Barnyards and Birkenstocks. I would say it started pretty much the first day I went to work for uh, working with agriculture for the conservation districts and continued throughout, uh, I guess it was close to 20 years of that or uh, maybe 18. The feeling that farmers and environmentalists who seemed at least outwardly to, uh, to intensely dislike one another had so much in common. And you'd watch this fight uh, between them play out again and again, uh, especially in the policy arena, not necessarily at the local level all the time. But when you got into a policy arena, and especially at the state level and upward, they just plain didn't seem to be able to agree. And yet it was so obvious, I mean, from the very outset, that they had so much in common. And if they would just work together, they could achieve miracles. They would move into an opposition polarized position. Yeah, exactly. Uh, there was a there was a sort of paradox that they I think they both faced. For farmers, there are legitimate reasons why agriculturists, why farmers are concerned about regulation. Right? Mm-hmm. You've got this incredibly diverse industry. Every farm is different. It's just that simple. Hundreds and hundreds of crops. Uh, grown in a multitude of ways on on land that in every instance is different, different climates, different pest issues, different issue, you know problems, concerns. Mm-hmm. You can have two farms growing the same crop on uh, side by side, and they their their problems can be immeasurably different. Mm-hmm. So solving those issues that appear in agriculture, and believe me, there are there are definitely environmental issues arising out of agriculture. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but solving those issues with a regulation that affects everybody in the same way mm-hmm. is incredibly difficult. Not impossible, but very, very difficult. And it has, then, costs. Uh, it ends up causing people to do things that they shouldn't really need to do and perhaps allowing others to get out of doing things that they probably should be doing. So it became. It was just obvious that the solution to the problem needs to be a combination of incentives and regulations. From the farmer's point of view, what would happen is they were so concerned about regulations, I say were and are, Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. that their reaction to environmental issues is to deny that they exist. If you walk into someone's legislator's office and you say, well, uh, you know, I admit there's a horrible problem, but we don't want to deal with it with the regulations. Let's do it voluntarily. Well, to start with, that legislator's just going to tune you out. So they find themselves in a position of denying the existence of the problem. And right. that, I think uh, there are a host of ways in which that plays itself out. Well, then, given that, if um, you wanted them to support incentives and to support a program for incentives, what would happen is— You have to show that the problem is a really big problem. You have problem. to acknowledge <laughs> the existence of the problem in order to ask for the money to solve it with incentives. Right. And they just didn't want to go there. But so, the environmentalists probably did want to well, go there. Exactly. So, so conversely, two, right. they want the regulations, and they're not prepared to accept incentives. People have been telling them— for years, oh, yeah, we can solve this problem with voluntary incentives. Every industry they ever dealt with, that, that was the answer. And so from their point of view, to walk in there then after that history 
and say to some legislator, well, gee, we would like to solve this with uh, incentives. Legislators would say, well, wait a minute, you know, weren't you in here just last week telling me that the only way we could deal with things is regulation? Now right. it looks like maybe, gee, we don't have to have those regulations. Anywhere else, right, you know? right. And so first thing you know, they both fall into this situation where they can't proceed. Very so they end up getting themselves sort of um, really like their feet stuck in the mud. Yes. Okay. Yes. Now, one of the things that jumps to mind for me when you bring this up is I was so surprised. I mean, it's right now. Well, when did you write this book? Uh, 14. 2014. 2014. Recent. Okay. For me, given the bubble that I live here on Vashon Island, I was really surprised by the subtitle, Why Farmers and Environmentalists Need Each Other, because I sort of thought, well, farmers and environmentalists, of course, they are in agreement and in alignment. And then you and I were chatting earlier, you know, at my office, having a pre-chat. And it started to raise the question in my mind, when it comes to small organic farmers and environmentalists compared to big industry, big agro farmers and environmentalists, is there a difference between um, those two um, couplings? Yes and no, uh, because actually there are many, many instances where large farmers, large uh, farm operations have uh, have worked with the environmental community to achieve some great stuff. I mean, there are just many instances of that. But to some extent, I suppose that may be true. One of the things that goes on is that people don't always sort of get it that you have all these instances where farmers and environmentalists do, in fact, work together, right? Mm -hmm. there, but there mm -hmm. are many. And it's one of the reasons in the book that I had those little grayed out areas that you, you know, right. mentioned is I wanted to relate some of those stories. And the book is pretty focused on Washington state in that mm -hmm. uh, all of those instances uh, that are related there are Washington examples of where farmers and environmentalists did in fact work together. And some of them definitely involve uh, larger farming operations. It's it's more a matter, I think, of when they get into the policy arena, the complications of that setting uh, make it more difficult for them to find ways to cooperate and to communicate meaningfully with one another. When, on the other hand, a specific environmentalist walked up to the knocks on the door of a specific farmer uh, at the local level, they sit down, they talk, they communicate, mm -hmm. and the obvious uh, logic of cooperating becomes apparent. Okay, so, so that it, brings up the second question I was going to raise, which was when you were giving the example of the people who walk in and talk to the legislature about policy, what we're talking about there is a state-level policy in many cases. Yes. The And then earlier you had talked about the idea of, you know, like a painting, you know, one problem with a broad stroke. So it seems almost as if state-level policy is too high to be able to meet all of the unique needs of all the different regions. I mean, farming in western Washington is as different from eastern Washington as Africa and China, right? Right. So what's happening maybe at the more local level, or does the state even give power to local levels to um, manage their environmental and farming questions? Yes and no, again. <laughs> it's okay. We're going to get a lot of yes and no's, I think. Go for it. Um, I think that there are obvious problems that just plain have to be dealt with on a larger scale and at the larger level. And that goes back into the, sort of the inherent situation we face with environmental issues, right? I'm the first to acknowledge, I think most farmers would be ready in an unguarded moment to mm -hmm. acknowledge that there are 
environmental issues with agriculture and that agriculture causes or contributes at least to some significant environmental concerns. Let's take an issue like salmon. Agriculture, especially uh, large monocultures, and I mean agriculture in various ways, contributes to salmon problems. But they are not the only contributor, and in some cases they may be significant, in other cases it may be fairly minor. But those problems need to be dealt with. We've got to get those problems solved. What we don't want to do is to visit the entire burden of responsibility upon some landowner because he's the guy we've got in our clutches. Uh, He's the guy we can perhaps regulate or the guy that we can perhaps uh, observe and catch at it or whatever. Well, and it wouldn't solve the problem because if that landowner was only responsible for 15% of the cause of the problem and you focus on him or her, then the other 85% of the problem remains. That's exactly right. The feeling I always had with these issues in dealing with farmers, uh, these are responsible people who are good citizens, who are members of their local community, respected and they want it that way. And, uh, you know, they send their kids to local school. You know what I mean? We're not Mm -hmm. talking about people who are somehow big uh, conglomerate outsiders. Agriculture is not as big a business as we tend to believe. Only about uh, maybe 25% of agriculture is actually large absentee landowners. The vast majority is still small farmers. And is some, that a Washington state or would you say across national And even, the, even a lot of the larger farms are still family operations uh, mm-hmm. where they farm the land, they live, live on the land. That's still the American tradition. It, it is that way to this day. So we're talking about responsible people who want to do their part. But what they don't want is they don't want to be the patsy uh, Mm -hmm. for solving a problem that being caused by someone else. And so a part of this whole equation has got to be a way to provide assurance to everyone involved that the solutions that we come up with are reasonable, moderate, not overwhelming, Mm -hmm. and that they visit the burdens of responsibility in fair and and legitimate Mm -hmm. ways. So let me take it sideways a little bit or or maybe take it back or down because a lot of times in uh, the world today, we take the way the world is at face value and we simply assume that is the way life is and then we just operate from that perspective. So as I'm thinking about these issues, what keeps cropping up for me is that there is this thing called the capitalist system and there is export and there is money making involved. So if we were to look back, let's say, oh, a mere 400 years ago, I'll go back that far. I mean, really, I think it was about 250 was when the first European arrived in the Pacific Northwest. But let's just go back 400, the way people lived here then. They all needed wood and timber products in order to make their boats and build their houses and produce their clothing even with cedar and things like that. Um, And they needed the forest to be healthy for the berries and the deer and whatnot. They also, in this area, depended upon the salmon. That was super important to them. So you've got timber, you've got food resources, and you've got salmon, and you have clean water. And the people in the tribes need all of that. Now, if one group was going out and doing something that was causing that that area of what they were doing, like, you know, getting a bunch of trees, yay, whatever, lots of houses, lots of log homes and stuff. And I don't mean log homes like, you know, pioneer people. I mean, like, you know, the, what we mm-hmm. used to have on Vashon, mm-hmm. down on the beach, you know, they had these, these giant, um, huge houses, and I yep. don't know the proper yep. name for yep. them, but 
Anyways, um, if they were doing that and it was causing damage to that salmon run, well, the thing is that they're all part of the same tribe. So that person who's out there bringing back wood and saying, look, I can build a bigger house for us, is going to say, wait a minute, I'm hungry, it's dinner time, I want to eat salmon. And so if there wasn't as much salmon coming down, it would hurt the person who was doing the excessive logging, let's just for that example. And when they all sit down and look at each other and say, what are we going to do about this? Because all of those local people need, on a daily, regular basis, all of those resources. If one messes up the others, you're not just hurting someone else's life, you're hurting your own life. There's no nimbyism in a tribal community. It's not in my backyard doesn't exist because you can't make it be in someone else's backyard without it also being your backyard. Whereas now, I think one of the the fights is that a person has a profit motive, warehouser, whoever it is, a profit motive to sell a bunch of lumber and maybe they live here in the state, but maybe they have three houses in other countries and maybe they have their money, you know, in Panama, so they can avoid taxes, right? You know, whatever. The thing is that a lot of times you can avoid the damage caused by your for-profit actions. Yes. Well, and even so how people, do we get around that? Well, even people of responsibility find it, I think, legitimately find it offensive if they're being asked to solve problems that really aren't their responsibility. You know, we live in this very large, very, very populous, complex <clears throat> society mm-hmm. uh, where there undoubtedly are people elsewhere who are sharing in responsibility for some of these problems. Uh, salmon are at least uh, confined to this river or that river or this uh, waterway. With climate, it's obviously global. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the opportunity to blame someone else and the prospect that, in fact, someone else is contributing significantly to the problem, and so you're not in a position yourself alone to be able to solve it. And then when someone comes along and seems to be wanting you to do that, that's a set of circumstances that's obviously considerably different from the one that you outline with uh, a tribe that's probably lives on and fishes a particular river, and and all of them have an obvious uh, motivation, motivation, yeah, investment, right, an investment, right. you know, to 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 pay attention to that. And okay. and you know, I mean, I don't know. It crosses my mind that that may actually have something to do with the nature of uh, Native American culture and the way in which they organized their societies, which was very tight. Uh, compared to the kind of thing that we have in this diverse kind of world we live in. Yeah, sometimes people want to jump to um, moralizing and fantasize about this idea that these people who live this way are like inherently better or different. The reality is that if you're, you know, 400 years ago, the options were different. You know, the realities were different that people lived with. And so in some ways, the current system has allowed us to care less about a neighbor if we're able to escape the consequences of our actions. And I don't think you could get away with that in the yeah. same way. You know, you can't you can't lie as easily to a family member as you can lie to a neighbor, as you can lie to someone if you're, you know, um, a bad politician and this person is 25,000 people away in a, in a district you never walk the streets of, you know. So the gradations of closeness and distance matter. Well, well that, and that, that really directly kind of leads to the the only solution that I know of, and mm-hmm. that is that you have more communication yeah. and that you communicate in a way that's respectful and that 
takes account of how other people see things. I It always strikes me, and I'd have to say just in terms of the way I personally see the world, and I'd have to say the way I approach lobbying too, mm-hmm. that I have to talk to someone, and maybe I don't know that person, but I know a few things about them. Uh, maybe I know their basic politics. Uh, they've got a D or an R behind their name uh, mm-hmm. in the legislature, and maybe I know a little bit about their background. I know that person's a rancher or, or that they're a... Uh, lawyer or something. I know a few things about that person. Before you ever walk in the door to sit down and have the conversation, Mm -hmm. it's already going through your mind. How does this person think? How do they see the world? What have they faced that causes them to see this issue in the way that I fear they may see it? And Mm -hmm. what kinds of arguments can I make to them that might cause them to change their mind. It's audience analysis. It's the same thing that you'd do if you were standing up in front of a a new group uh, and and you look out there and you say to yourself, wow, who are these people? And am I going to make a fool of myself? And how am I going to express my views in a way that they might find persuasive? Uh, and, and yet, I, and yet, all of that is based upon the idea that upon looking at them prior to having spoken with them or listened to them, we can make some assumption that causes us to then choose a particular tact or approach. And yet, ultimately, the best lobbying results probably come out of when we've had a chance to listen to them. And sometimes, most of the time, we are surprised maybe by their perspective or what they have to say. And then we're able to communicate because... Yes. Instead of the assumption, now we actually have some reality to work with. So I'm going to do a quick station identification, and then we're going to get into the unique and respectful options for finding solutions that we want to talk about. Sounds good. All right. So, folks, uh, if you are just joining us, you are listening to March Twisdell, producer and host of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose. Today I'm talking with Dawn Stewart, New Islander. We'll be talking about that soon, too. Uh, But before we get back to the interview, I'd like to give a shout-out to those who keep Voice of Vashon on the air. VOV programming support is provided by Quartermaster Cottage, where the Harbor View showcases each season from the front deck, the spacious and interior is always bright and the location offers access to island activities as well as relaxing walks on the beach. Open year-round at www.quartermastercottage.com. And also, support is provided by Vashon Theater, the island's one and only movie house. Since 1947, I didn't know that. Wow. Striving to have something for everyone. The Vashon Theater has expanded their offerings to include national theater, Bolshoi Ballet, opera, and art and architecture series. Information about all films at VashonTheater.com. Watch locally. Okie doke. So... You created a second book, which is called Final Adjournment. It's a mystery. And in this mystery, you sort of um, made it almost like a psychological mystery. Instead of like, you know, where's the gun and where's the the footprint and where's the unique little physical clues that we're all so used to, it's more a matter of can I figure out how people are thinking, motives, what's going on inside of people's heads. And the best way to figure those things out usually is to actually take some time to listen. So tell us a little bit about what inspired you to write this book, and then we're going to come back to what brought you to Vashon Island. Okay. Okay. Well, I I wanted to write a fun mystery. I love mysteries. <laughs> and uh, and so 
that was obviously a part of it. But also, I wanted a protagonist who solved crimes by uh, using a natural talent for seeing the other person's point of view. And uh, my own lobbying experience uh, led me to feel like it would be fun to have a mystery set here in Washington at the state legislature with the protagonist uh, being a lobbyist. Uh, and so that's uh, Sandy Dalton uh, mm-hmm. in this story. And a man or woman? A man. Okay. Uh, and uh, Sandy is a contract lobbyist who represents uh, natural resource uh, businesses, in this case uh, the commercial fishing industry. Uh, so he deals with tribal issues. He deals with uh, all sorts of problems that pertain to our salmon resource. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the uh, I won't be giving anything away, I think, because it happens in the prologue, uh, right. that the victim uh, is a powerful state senator who happens to chair the Natural Resources Committee that right. Sandy lobbies before. Um, and it's a crime where, the, as you say, there is very little forensic physical evidence, right? So that means that the only real clues that you've got uh, have to do with motive. Who might have a motive? And that's the strength of a mystery. You get to explore those questions of motive. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this case, uh, there are uh, a great many people who might have a motive, but certain ones in particular. And uh, Sandy's approach, uh, these are people that Sandy deals with frequently, so his approach is to basically go uh, speak with them uh, and uh, try to ascertain if he can figure out what their motive might have been. And uh, I found all of that uh, exploration fun and interesting and uh, and sort of also a way of highlighting how uh, lobbyists uh, approach the world and how lobbying occurs. I actually, uh, as you might imagine after doing it myself for many years, right. have a certain respect for uh, lobbyists. I don't find them to be quite so horrible a people as people tend to believe, and, I, and also a certain respect for state legislators uh, or, you know, elected politicians who have a incredibly difficult job to do. If you actually have an issue you care about and you go down there and you start lobbying, which I've been doing for almost a decade now, pretty soon it really becomes clear that they're they're just like you. You know, they're just people doing what I consider to be a job that I would never in my entire life want. Like if people elected me to be a legislator, I have a feeling I would turn it down. It is an intense environment no matter how good a person is at dealing with the current system, the current system in and of itself inherently is just producing major problems. Well, I can I can cap it up very quickly Go with respect it. to final adjournment because I'm just going to tell people I just am delighted with how it turned out, uh-huh. and I hope they I hope people enjoy it. I think it's a, a kind of a fun mystery yes. uh, that that people will find uh, perhaps also interesting and informative, but. But mostly, I think it's just a fun read. I At least I very much hope it is. Well, and it's 176 pages long. Do you remember how many words? Yeah, about 165,000, I think. All right. I'm sorry, not 165,000. I was going to say, whoa, no, 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 I don't no. think that's no, right. No, 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 no. I was I'm like, sorry. What? No, about, okay. about 65,000, yeah, no, which is kind brilliant. of typical. No, it is totally typical. So this is... Um, this would be a great book, folks, because um, it'll be available. Do you already have some yes, copies of yes, these? Yes, it's the, out. I do. And it's on Amazon. And it, yeah, uh, I think she's getting them in, so I expect she probably has them okay. by now. Well, while this show is on the air, these two copies um, will be at my little display. 
down there in the bookshop next to the comfy chair by the window so people can just kick back and browse through. Um, So those are just review copies for people to look at. But, you know, for all of the people who live on Vashon and who commute, I don't know if you know this, but there are, there's sort of like, there's two buses that come back from Seattle. There's more than two, but there's like these two buses that come back right during rush hour. Yeah. But the thing is that the Vashon Islanders have sort of separated. There's like the noisy bus and there's the quiet bus. And so Vashon Islanders who are coming home, they sort of know which is which, because if you're on the quiet bus, it means like it's a bunch of Islanders sitting around reading their books and just being mellow. And then if you're on the noisy bus, oh my gosh, these people get on and they're all standing around, chatter, 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 chatter at each other like you could never read a book in the I, background. I did, I did not know that. Yeah. That's wonderful. So I, I think this looks like the type of book that probably would be consumed in may in a week, if not less. It's, you're right. It's it's totally accessible. It's um, not too long, but it's long enough to be interesting. And I, I'm not going to give anything away either because I've been browsing through it. Ha ha, folks. You'll just have to get the book and check it out. Okay. And then go down to Olympia and it'll all feel relevant. So one of the themes of 2018, where we are right now, is the result of what? Oh, what happened before us, right? Okay. So how we have gotten here on every issue is important. Because, for example, imagine if a person's an environmentalist and they really want the salmon to be healthy and happy around here. And they say, yeah, but I don't want to hear about the policies of the past. I'm not interested in all that. Let's just talk about what we can do to fix it. Well, we're here because of the policies of the past. So the question I have for you is, what do you think, if you had to pick the top one or two things that you would encourage people on these issues to focus on, what would you say, here's where you would put your energy. You have limited energy. You only have so much time. There's you know, probably 20 policy changes I would recommend, but the top two are, but a boom, but a bang. You mean specific policy questions? Well, no, you don't have to go specific. I mean, I, I can tell you in terms of approach. It's either, it's either a policy question or it's an approach issue, or it could be if you want to go lobby in Olympia, here's how I would start that approach. What are the top two things you would say, big bang for your buck? Okay, so let me pick a specific policy issue, yes. and then let me, let me pick an approach issue. Yes. Uh, Specific policy for me, the thing that seems like the the biggest opportunity uh, with the least pain is environmental markets. Uh, farmers, uh, farms in general, farmers are already producing crops on their land. They're already very concerned with having an environment on that farm that allows the growing of crops, which really requires uh, a lot. And so they're already in the business of generating environmental benefits. Um, Mm -hmm. They have opportunities on farms to actually make things better. Remember that when you pass a regulation, uh, you're basically preventing someone, you're saying, don't do this, don't do that. Very, very rarely do you have an opportunity in the regulatory setting to say to people, you must do this and you must do that. So if you want new trees planted or new grass grown or improvements made in a currently inadequate environmental setting it's very difficult to get that with regulation but you can get it well because you have it requires that people take affirmative action so it means that you've got to tell them you have to go out there and plant trees you have to go out there and and take some specific affirmative steps there are some ways in which you can condition 
behavior. But for the most part, affirmative improvements in environmental quality require someone to do something that you can't regulate them to do. Frequently, you can regulate them not to do things, but right. it's very difficult to require them to take affirmative action. The thing about a negative is the positive can be seen as maybe a financial hardship because if you're requiring an action, you're requiring the resources, the time, the energy, and the money to do that. And what then happens to a farmer who doesn't have enough savings to accomplish it? Do they just suddenly have to shut down? So I could I could see yeah, how it also edges you know. into slavery. It edges into all kinds of things. Right. It's, it's, uh, it's coercive. Coercive. And, okay. and okay. so okay. that's the reason that I always end up coming down on that we need this balanced combination of incentives. Mm -hmm. voluntary, typically financially motivated incentives, and regulations. You need both. You can't get both halves of the problem solved with just one half of the solution. Got it. Uh, and the thing that's terrific about environmental markets is here's an opportunity to use both of those tools to, to actually generate revenue uh, let's take a carbon market, for example. Yeah, I was going to say, what is an environmental okay, so market? So an environmental market is where you use money generated by people who are trying to protect the environment, and you use that money to purchase, uh, using incentives, uh, environmental benefits that correct for that. So yes, let's use yeah. the example of a water quality market. Mm -hmm. uh, you have a river. The river is uh, polluted uh, mm -hmm. with respect to some issues, say nitrogen, okay. uh, and you need to get the river fixed, right? So you mm -hmm. need to perhaps prohibit people from putting nitrogen in that river, but you may find that you've done that and the river's still polluted. Hmm. How are you going to fix the river? Well, the answer may be uh, to, with respect to water quality, uh, you'll have a total maximum daily load that that river can carry and all of those, say, point source polluters. So we're talking about a sewage treatment plant or mm -hmm. uh, you know other polluters that are polluting that river, uh, they're given a quota, mm -hmm. a, a load that they're allowed to contribute to that. And it may turn out that maintaining their pollution at that level is way, way, way hugely, massively costly. So what you frequently will find is sewage treatment facility has got a very limited load that it's allocated under the Clean Water Act. Mm -hmm. uh, and in order to meet that, it's got to, maybe it's got to build a $100 million uh, sewage treatment facility. It's also possible that for, say, $5 million or $10 million, they could go up the river and actually get landowners to uh, plant new plantings along the riparian areas, mm -hmm. to adopt new practices in the management of their properties, uh, to do a variety of things that would get them to that improved water quality way faster and reduce the load uh, way more significantly than the building of that $100 million plant. So you're either going to do prevention or cure. Right. And in this case, what you do is you say, what we're going to do is maybe I don't have to build that $100 million plant if I can get the water quality improved in that river in other ways. Those other ways may turn out to be more effective, cheaper, they may provide all kinds of ancillary benefits. So, for example, if you're going to build a sewage treatment plant, that doesn't provide you with much wildlife habitat. I was just but if you're going to go that, up the yeah, river and plant yeah. broad swaths of buffers and, and natural vegetation, you're not just improving water quality. You're providing habitat for animals. Mm -hmm. You're doing all kind. You're doing flood prevent, prevention, fish, eggs. fish, all kinds mm -hmm. of things. And so, what you get is you get a massively wonderful environmental improvement for a cost that's 
a fraction of the cost of of building the sewage plant. So and is that, that that's the way? Just, that's in fact plays out in reality many, many, many times in water right. quality, but it works out in the same way with many times with respect to wildlife habitat issues, with respect to uh, air quality issues, uh, climate. Uh, so what so these what markets represent is right. a real opportunity. Right. So that that's what you're calling an environmental market. What uh, And what I'm looking at that as is to say to all of our listeners, if you read an article about something that's going on and you're scared of the outcome, rather than jump to sort of a black and white assumption that there's a single culprit and we just need to come down on them and everything will be solved. Because as you're talking about this, there's a level of detail and there's a level of respect for multiple needs and there's a level of of sort of careful assessment. And so we maybe want to invite the American people who are being encouraged by the current political climate to become very black and white and very reactive in their thinking and instead encourage everyone to slow down and in a way say, you know, what does my mature grown-up adult mind think I can come up with if I evaluate carefully and, and with depth? That's it, March. I, I, here's the thing. That issue, that one example, just represents one of many, many other uh, examples uh, where, in particular, say, farmers and environmentalists could probably reach common ground, reach a, an agreement that both of them were not only happy with, but that was hugely beneficial to both. In this case, with the water quality markets, the farmers own a lot of that land. Mm -hmm. So they'd be in a position to actually add some environmental gains and, and, and the sale of some environmental services to what they're already doing on their land, growing crops and producing food and fiber for the public and for, right. for market, they also would be able to produce these environmental services and actually enhance their bottom line. At the same time, the environmental community gets something that it's very difficult to produce, and that is actual environmental lift, actually improving the right. current conditions of the environment, as opposed to constantly being fighting this, this battle where they're trying to prevent things from getting worse. And the best they can do is always try to provide this bulwark against things getting worse. That's a horrible, uh, a difficult, difficult, I think, challenge for them. Well, and, and, and a third and fourth layer is you have public image. So the farmers are going to come across better to the public because they are going to be seen as also caring about the longevity of the land and the environmental outcome. And environmentalists are going to be seen more positively because instead of just always screaming fire and demanding tons of tax funds to run in and do something, they're advocating for a less expensive, when it comes to the tax base, outcome. And they're seen as being cooperative and creative as well. And everyone feels like we're all working together. Heaven forbid, we're actually cooperating and have a shared goal. Absolutely. Uh, if people talked, you'd get there. You'd right. get this answer, and you'd get the host of other answers. If people actually were talking about it right. and thinking it through together with with the common shared goal of making this work in a way that doesn't damage people, that respects them, uh, you'd get there. Right. Uh, you really would. Uh, and Yes. So I'm going to do one more station identification for folks who have just joined us, and then we're going to come back to sort of that, that concept of 
political warfare that's interfering with our ability to communicate and you as a New Islander. We'll start with you as a New Islander, I think. All righty. Okie doke. So, folks, if you have just tuned in recently, my name is March Twisdale. I'm the producer and host of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose here on Voice of Vashon. I'd like to welcome you to my interview with Dawn Stewart, and we're going to give some shout-outs to those who keep VOV on the air. Programming support is provided by Dental Care of Vashon. Whether you're suffering from tooth or gum discomfort, damaged or missing teeth, sleep issues, or are in need of crowns or dental implants, Dr. Demova and her team will bring you relief and renewed confidence in a comfortable caring environment at 206-463-9115 or dentalcareofvashon.com. Programming support is also provided by Gravy, a new addition to Vashon Island serving a seasonal locally sourced menu supporting many Vashon farms. Dinner served Thursday through Monday, 4 p.m. to 9 p.m. Sunday at Gravy is barbecue. Full service catering always available. Patio seating in the sunshine months. Gravy on Vashon Highway in the heart of town. It's all gravy. All righty. So, we have about eight minutes. Um, so, in a real short nut, tiny little nutshell, democracy, the way it's practiced right now in our country and locally at the state level, has taken on some of the characteristics of political warfare, stopping people from doing the best that human beings are actually capable of doing. Do you have a couple of thoughts that come from your experience that you'd like to share? Yeah, probably your familiar people are with Bill Bishop's book, The Big Sort, uh, in which he discusses how we tend to move to and live in communities that share our point of view. Uh, I guess I have to confess that my own move— not that long ago to Vashon Island, mm-hmm. uh, was very much that way. We came over, we liked it, we felt comfortable here, uh, and it seemed like the kind of place that I wanted to live. That that psychology, that that phenomenon is really driving how our political system is structured, and it means that we've got all these seats in Congress uh, and probably the same thing in the state legislature uh, that are safe uh, uh, on both sides of the aisle. It means that groups like farmers or like environmentalists can get accustomed to only approaching lobbying and relying upon uh, those legislators that they know are safe legislators. Uh, So Mm. it means that the groups involved um, have less motivation or seem to feel they have less motivation to actually approach the other side. You know, Uh, that is interesting that you say that. And I'm curious because when I lobby in Olympia, I don't waste my time on the people who already agree with me. I know other people who have cultivated relationships. There's the area that I advocate and there's people who are working year-round trying to raise the education level because, as you've said, a lot of times legislators don't have the faintest clue about a topic they're asked to legislate on. Um, But my goal when I go down and talk to like the 17 or 22 people on my list um, is I'm talking to all the people who have a history of voting against what I believe is best for the people in this state 
and supplying them with information and being the friendly, respectful person who's not screaming at them, but is just saying very respectfully, I really think you want to look at this. So I'm curious, do people really run around flocking to the folks who already agree with them, like like the choir? Not when you're a skilled and professional lobbyist, which okay. are, you're doing a good job at it, I'm sure. And I, I but but individuals, you know, the public, uh, when it comes to actually uh, going to, a, for example, I I'd be very surprised if uh, uh, people who have strong conservative views spend very much time going to the public meetings of some liberal legislator. Mm. And conversely, uh, un- unless they're kind of in for what they feel will be an unpleasant experience or, you know, mm-hmm. they, they approach it as though there's this divide. And, right. and I feel like uh, that's why in Barnyards yes. uh, I really wanted to focus in that uh, second to the last chapter uh, on the ways in which uh, – Farmers and environmentalists could begin to uh, communicate with one another. Um, right, right, so, right. The last chapter we were talking about before. What's the title of it? Yeah, um, it's uh, tools for dialogue. That's it. The that's common the ch- ground, chapter fifteen. And and you know it it just got me thinking as I was working on this was when I was with American Farmland Trust about you have all of these means of communication that every organization uses. So every environmental group has got a magazine or a newsletter. They've got an annual meeting. Uh, They've got periodic board meetings. Uh, The same thing with every agriculture group. Um, So why doesn't uh, uh, someone in the environmental community that believes they're right Mm -hmm. and believes that they're on the side of truth, justice, and the real world, why don't they go ahead and approach the Farm Bureau and say, look, you guys have a newsletter going out or you have your monthly magazine or you've got an annual meeting coming up. Let me speak at that annual meeting. And if you want to have somebody there who will speak on the other side of the issue, that's fine. But if you did that, if the farmers did that, if environmentalists did that, or if someone even in the mainstream, in the middle, orchestrated that kind of thing so that you had farmers speaking to environmentalists and you had environmentalists speaking to farmers directly. Those people, when they walked into the room and looked at those people they're talking to or when they sat down to write the article that they knew would be read uh, by people with a different point of view, they Mm -hmm. would have no choice but to think through who those people are that I'm talking to, how do they see the world, what is it that motivates them, and why should they pay attention to me? And in the process of that, not only do you shape the argument to fit the people you're speaking to, mm-hmm. but you also have to shape your own thinking. And your own approach to the world also shifts to to, to make that work. And so it that process of communicating with one another, thinking about the other point of view, forces both sides to rethink their own perspective. Right. And, and it's not just so much about an argument. It's also about raising awareness and education. If you're just talking to your own people, you know, the bubble. Oh, you know, good the, living in the, yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Like, okay, I'm going to go convince the choir to, you know, believe in God. They're the choir. Well, I, <laughs> I mean, like... I had, remember. <laughs> Been there, done that. <laughs> some right? years ago when I was with AFT, one of the first projects was to convince the ag community that agricultural conservation easements, purchase of development rights programs, were a good thing. Uh, And they were very suspicious, very suspicious. And I recall going to those events uh, all around the state in some of the most conservative 
communities in the state, and I'd be there to try to convince them of this, and I'd look out at the group, and that's what was going through my mind, is why do they care? What is it from their point of view? Why does this make sense as they see the world? And the minute that you begin asking those questions, Mm -hmm. you immediately begin to maybe question some of the things that you took for granted, but mm-hmm. also you begin to appreciate that, in fact, there are some excellent reasons why they should be paying right. attention to they this. They are and valid. They're valid reasons. It's right. not that you're trying to mislead someone. It's quite the opposite. You're trying to explain to them why from their own perspective. Again, in the book, in Barnyards. I was going to say. Well, at the end of each chapter, yeah, 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 I, yeah. I have a little section in which I <clears throat> the. They're, they're all titled, this section is for farmers, environmentalists do not read. Right. Uh, and this section is for, for environmentalists, farmers do not read. Uh, the idea being to try to convince each to definitely read that section. Right, right, right. Uh, and see what the other point of view is when it's argued mm-hmm. so that you kind of understand um, uh, how they see the world. But once again, what all of that is based upon is that you've already gotten to that point where you understand we live in a gray world not a black and white world. And so as long as a person believes, or is if they're stuck in that position of black and white thinking, which is very much teenage thinking, I'm just going to throw it out there, folks. We know this now. Biologically, the teenage brain is very much oriented towards black and white thinking. And the idea of adulthood is that our brains evolve to the point where we see the world as gray. And so I encourage everyone who has a tendency to want to just you know, throw themselves completely one direction and assume the other the other direction is all wrong. It's just not the case. They're humans. They're yes. good, decent people. They're not the enemy. And I, I, w- I would add one thing. I would think I would actually say not so much that it's black and white or gray, but it's black or white or complicated. Right. The answers mm-hmm. that are in that gray arena are mm-hmm. are very real very hard. And when you find them, they're worth advocating for. Uh, they're the right answer. It's not as though there isn't right and wrong in that gray arena. Mm-hmm. It's that mm-hmm. the answers are just more complex. Yeah. And until you explore them, until you're forced to actually think through what some of these complexities may be, someone tells you something you didn't understand that before. Right. You didn't appreciate, gee, wow, that's a new way of looking at it. How do I do what I want and still address that problem. And suddenly mm-hmm. you're into complexity. Right. And if you could, that's why you need to do this. And it's why that, that the world's not a simple place, right? Uh, no. And so as you, as you explore these ideas with other people, those complexities arise and solutions are found. And, uh-huh. you know, it's, it's also not that somehow you're not advocating for you know, uh, the truth, right, justice, and good, you right. are. It's just that the truth, right, justice, and good isn't quite as simple as perhaps you thought it was. Right. You know, it's interesting because there's a, there's a moral sort of attitude in many cultures, not just our own, where you once you've come to find that moral and right answer, that you're supposed to hold on super tight and not let the winds of change or anything affect you. And that there's like this idea that that's the, you know, the valiant thing to do. The problem is that that is to assume that when you came to that understanding, you were suddenly all knowing and there's nothing new you could possibly take in because you know it all. And the person who won't change their mind is the person who refuses to learn new information. 
And I've always had the attitude as a person who, haha, everyone out there listening knows I have very strong opinions. I also have an attitude that if I have changed my mind on an issue, then that is a great day because I learned something that I didn't know before. So to me, to change my opinion on something is the goal, not to not change. Right. I mean, you believed that thing that you believed. With the usually information I had at for, the time. And, and usually for a very important value reason. Right. Something that's important to you in life. Uh, and by changing your mind, it doesn't mean that you've abandoned those values. Mm-hmm. In fact, it just means you're pursuing them and and finding the answers uh, in perhaps a more complicated world than perhaps you first yeah. thought, I, I feel. Well, Don, I think you are an amazingly awesome addition to the island. <laughs> well, I think the island's an awesome addition to me, so. You're really happy here so oh, far, boy. yeah? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely love this place. And your wife's name again is Charlotte? It's Charlotte. And how long have you been here? We've uh, We bought the property back in uh, 12. Right. And then uh, we were remodeling and finally managed to move over here in January, just uh, la- January of uh, last year. Oh, that's beautiful. You're approaching your, well, well basically, over, yeah, over yeah, you're, you're at your one-year mark. Well, you're a newbie then oh, yeah. still, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, all but right. People seem to tolerate me here. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I, I really do love the island. I'm sure 10 years from now, you're going to be super, super thrilled that you made the decision to come here. I just get happier every year that I live here, pretty I, much. I, I, have, I can already see. Yeah. I can already see that. Thank you very much for joining me on the show today. Thanks very much, Mark. And people can find you at Don Stewart, S-T-U-A-R-T dot net. Correct. Excellent. Okie doke. So, folks... That's our show. My name is March Twisdale. You've been listening to my interview with Don Stewart. I'd like to thank you for listening to Prose, Poetry, and Purpose, where my guests share how they hope to inspire positive change in the world, one reader and one listener at a time. Come here, gather round the stage The time has come for us to voice our rage Against the ones who've trapped us in a cage To steal from us the value of our wage From underneath the vestiture of law The lobbyists at Washington do not at liberty, the bureaucrats guffaw And until they are purged, we won't withdraw We'll occupy the streets We'll occupy the courts We'll occupy the offices of you Till you do The bidding of the many, not the few Our nation was built upon the right Of every person to improve their plight The laws of this republic they rewrite And now a few own everything in sight 
They own it free of liability They own but they are not like you and me Their influence dictates legality And until they are stopped we are not free We'll occupy the streets We'll occupy the courts We'll occupy the offices of you Till you do The bidding of the many, not the few You enforce your monopolies with guns While sacrificing our daughters and sons But certain things belong to everyone Your thievery has left the people none So take heed of our notice to redress We had little to lose, we must confess Your empty words do leave us unimpressed A growing number join us in protest We occupy the streets, we occupy the courts We occupy the offices of you till you do of the many, not the few. You can't divide us into sides. And from our gaze you cannot hide. Denial serves to amplify. And our allegiance you can't buy Our government is not for sale The banks do not deserve a bail We will not reward those who fail We will not move till we prevail We'll occupy the streets We'll occupy the courts We'll occupy the offices of you Till you do The bidding of the many, not the few We'll occupy the streets We'll occupy the courts We'll occupy the offices of you Till you do Bidding of the many, not the few We are the many You are the few